had moved there to handle its design work for Apple. There he happened to see sketches that the firm had made for Wozniak's new remote-controlled device, and he flew into a rage. Apple had a clause in its contract that gave it the right to bar Frog Design from working on other computer-related projects, and Jobs invoked it. I informed them, he recalled, that working with Woz wouldn't be acceptable to us. When the Wall Street Journal heard what happened, it got in touch with Wozniak, who, as usual, was open and honest. He said that Jobs was punishing him. Steve Jobs has a hate for me, probably because of the things I said about Apple, he told the reporter. Jobs's action was remarkably petty, but it was also partly caused by the fact that he understood, in ways that others did not, that the look and style of a product served to brand it. A device that had Wozniak's name on it and used the same design language as Apple's products might be mistaken for something that Apple had produced. It's not personal, Jobs told the newspaper, explaining that he wanted to make sure that Wozniak's remote wouldn't look like something made by Apple. We don't want to see our design language used on other products. Woz has to find his own resources. He can't leverage off Apple's resources. We can't treat him specially. Jobs volunteered to pay for the work that Frog Design had already done for Wozniak, but even so, the executives at the firm were taken aback. When Jobs demanded that they send him the drawings done for Wozniak or destroy them, they refused. Jobs had to send them a letter invoking Apple's contractual right. Herbert Pfeiffer, the design director of the firm, risked Jobs's wrath by publicly dismissing his claim that the dispute with Wozniak was not personal. It's a power play, Pfeiffer told the journal. They have personal problems between them. Hertzfeld was outraged when he heard what Jobs had done. He lived about twelve blocks from Jobs, who sometimes would drop by on his walks. I got so furious about the Wozniak remote episode that when Steve next came over, I wouldn't let him in the house, Hertzfeld recalled. He knew he was wrong but he tried to rationalize, and maybe in his distorted reality he was able to. Wozniak, always a teddy bear even when annoyed, hired another design firm and even agreed to stay on Apple's retainer as a spokesman. Showdown, Spring 1985 There were many reasons for the rift between Jobs and Scully in the spring of 1985. Some were merely business disagreements, such as Scully's attempt to maximize profits by keeping the Macintosh price high when Jobs wanted to make it more affordable. Others were weirdly psychological and stemmed from the torrid and unlikely infatuation they initially had with each other. Scully had painfully craved Jobs's affection. Jobs had eagerly sought a father figure and mentor. And when the ardor began to cool, there was an emotional backwash. But at its core, the growing breach had two fundamental causes, one on each side. For Jobs, the problem was that Scully never became a product person. He didn't make the effort or show the capacity to understand the fine points of what they were making. On the contrary, 
He found Jobs' passion for tiny technical tweaks and design details to be obsessive and counterproductive. He had spent his career selling sodas and snacks whose recipes were largely irrelevant to him. He wasn't naturally passionate about products, which was among the most damning sins that Jobs could imagine. I tried to educate him about the details of engineering, Jobs recalled, but he had no idea how products are created, and after a while it just turned into arguments. But I learned that my perspective was right. Products are everything. He came to see Scully as clueless, and his contempt was exacerbated by Scully's hunger for his affection and delusions that they were very similar. For Scully, the problem was that Jobs, when he was no longer in courtship or manipulative mode, was frequently obnoxious, rude, selfish, and nasty to other people. He found Jobs's boorish behavior as despicable as Jobs found Scully's lack of passion for product details. Scully was kind, caring, and polite to a fault. At one point, they were planning to meet with Xerox's vice chair, Bill Glavin, and Scully begged Jobs to behave. But as soon as they sat down, Jobs told Glavin, You guys don't have any clue what you're doing, and the meeting broke up. I'm sorry, but I couldn't help myself, Jobs told Scully. It was one of many such cases. As Atari's Al Alcorn later observed, Scully believed in keeping people happy and worrying about relationships. Steve didn't give a shit about that, but he did care about the product in a way that Scully never could, and he was able to avoid having too many bozos working at Apple by insulting anyone who wasn't an A player. The board became increasingly alarmed at the turmoil, and in early 1985, Arthur Rock and some other disgruntled directors delivered a stern lecture to both. They told Scully that he was supposed to be running the company, and he should start doing so with more authority and less eagerness to be pals with Jobs. They told Jobs that he was supposed to be fixing the mess at the Macintosh division and not telling other divisions how to do their job. Afterward, Jobs retreated to his office and typed on his Macintosh, I will not criticize the rest of the organization. I will not criticize the rest of the organization. As the Macintosh continued to disappoint, sales in March 1985 were only 10% of the budget forecast, Jobs holed up in his office fuming or wandered the halls berating everyone else for the problems. His mood swings became worse, and so did his abuse of those around him. Middle-level managers began to rise up against him. The marketing chief, Mike Murray, sought a private meeting with Scully at an industry conference. As they were going up to Scully's hotel room, Jobs spotted them and asked to come along. Murray asked him not to. He told Scully that Jobs was wreaking havoc and had to be removed from managing the Macintosh division. Scully replied that he was not yet resigned to having a showdown with Jobs. Murray later sent a memo directly to Jobs criticizing the way he treated colleagues and denouncing management by character assassination. For a few weeks, it seemed as if there might be a solution to the turmoil. Jobs became fascinated by a flat-screen technology developed by a firm near Palo Alto called Woodside Design, run by an eccentric engineer named Steve Kitchen.
He also was impressed by another startup that made a touchscreen display that could be controlled by your finger, so you didn't need a mouse. Together, these might help fulfill Jobs' vision of creating a Mac in a book. On a walk with Kitchen, Jobs spotted a building in nearby Menlo Park and declared that they should open a skunk works factory to work on these ideas. It could be called Apple Labs, and Jobs could run it, going back to the joy of having a small team and developing a great new product. Scully was thrilled by the possibility. It would solve most of his management issues, moving Jobs back to what he did best and getting rid of his disruptive presence in Cupertino. Scully also had a candidate to replace Jobs as manager of the Macintosh division, Jean-Louis Gasset, Apple's chief in France, who had suffered through Jobs' visit there. Gasset flew to Cupertino and said he would take the job if he got a guarantee that he would run the division rather than work under Jobs. One of the board members, Phil Schlein of Macy's, tried to convince Jobs that he would be better off thinking up new products and inspiring a passionate little team. But after some reflection, Jobs decided that was not the path he wanted. He declined to cede control to Gasset, who wisely went back to Paris to avoid the power clash that was becoming inevitable. For the rest of the spring, Jobs vacillated. There were times when he wanted to assert himself as a corporate manager, even writing a memo urging cost savings by eliminating free beverages and first-class air travel, and other times when he agreed with those who were encouraging him to go off and run a new Apple Labs R&D group. In March, Murray let loose with another memo that he marked, Do Not Circulate, but gave to multiple colleagues. In my three years at Apple, I've never observed so much confusion, fear, and dysfunction as in the past ninety days, he began. We are perceived by the rank and file as a boat without a rudder, drifting away into foggy oblivion. Murray had been on both sides of the fence. At times he conspired with Jobs to undermine Scully, but in this memo he laid the blame on Jobs. Whether the cause of or because of the dysfunction, Steve Jobs now controls a seemingly impenetrable power base. At the end of that month, Scully finally worked up the nerve to tell Jobs that he should give up running the Macintosh division. He walked over to Jobs' office one evening and brought the human resources manager, Jay Elliott, to make the confrontation more formal. There is no one who admires your brilliance and vision more than I do, Scully began. He had uttered such flatteries before, but this time it was clear that there would be a brutal but punctuating the thought, and there was. But this is really not going to work, he declared. The flatteries punctured by butts continued. We have developed a great friendship with each other, he said, but I have lost confidence in your ability to run the Macintosh division. He also berated Jobs for bad-mouthing him as a bozo behind his back. Jobs looked stunned and countered with an odd challenge, that Scully should help and coach him more. You've got to spend more time with me. Then he lashed back. 
He told Scully he knew nothing about computers, was doing a terrible job running the company, and had disappointed jobs ever since coming to Apple. Then he began to cry. Scully sat there biting his fingernails. I'm going to bring this up with the board, Scully declared. I'm going to recommend that you step down from your operating position of running the Macintosh division. I want you to know that. He urged Jobs not to resist and to agree instead to work on developing new technologies and products. Jobs jumped from his seat and turned his intense stare on Scully. I don't believe you're going to do that, he said. If you do that, you're going to destroy the company. Over the next few weeks, Jobs' behavior fluctuated wildly. At one moment, he would be talking about going off to run Apple Labs, but in the next moment, he would be enlisting support to have Scully ousted. He would reach out to Scully, then lash out at him behind his back, sometimes on the same night. One night at nine, he called Apple's general counsel, Al Eisenstadt, to say he was losing confidence in Scully and needed his help convincing the board to fire him. At eleven the same night, he phoned Scully to say, You're terrific, and I just want you to know I love working with you. At the board meeting on April 11th, Scully officially reported that he wanted to ask Jobs to step down as the head of the Macintosh division and focus instead on new product development. Arthur Rock, the most crusty and independent of the board members, then spoke. He was fed up with both of them, with Scully for not having the guts to take command over the past year, and with Jobs for acting like a petulant brat. The board needed to get this dispute behind them, and to do so, it should meet privately with each of them. Scully left the room so that Jobs could present first. Jobs insisted that Scully was the problem because he had no understanding of computers. Rock responded by berating Jobs. In his growling voice, he said that Jobs had been behaving foolishly for a year and had no right to be managing a division. Even Jobs' strongest supporter, Phil Schlein, tried to talk him into stepping aside gracefully to run a research lab for the company. When it was Scully's turn to meet privately with the board, he gave an ultimatum. You can back me, and then I take responsibility for running the company, or we can do nothing, and you're going to have to find yourselves a new CEO. If given the authority, he said, he would not move abruptly, but would ease Jobs into the new role over the next few months. The board unanimously sided with Scully. He was given the authority to remove Jobs whenever he felt the timing was right. As Jobs waited outside the boardroom, knowing full well that he was losing, he saw Del Yoakum, a longtime colleague, and hugged him. After the board made its decision, Scully tried to be conciliatory. Jobs asked that the transition occur slowly over the next few months, and Scully agreed. Later that evening, Scully's executive assistant, Nanette Buckhout, called Jobs to see how he was doing. He was still in his office, shell-shocked. Scully had already left, and Jobs came over to talk to her. Once again, he began oscillating wildly in his attitude toward Scully. Why did John do this to me, he said. He betrayed me. Then he swung the other way. 
Perhaps he should take some time away to work on restoring his relationship with Scully, he said. John's friendship is more important than anything else, and I think maybe that's what I should do. Concentrate on our friendship. Plotting a Coup Jobs was not good at taking no for an answer. He went to Scully's office in early May 1985 and asked for more time to show that he could manage the Macintosh division. He would prove himself as an operations guy, he promised. Scully didn't back down. Jobs next tried a direct challenge. He asked Scully to resign. I think you really lost your stride, Jobs told him. You were really great the first year and everything went wonderful, but something happened. Scully, who generally was even-tempered, lashed back, pointing out that Jobs had been unable to get the Macintosh software developed, come up with new models, or win customers. The meeting degenerated into a shouting match about who was the worst manager. After Jobs stalked out, Scully turned away from the glass wall of his office, where others had been looking in on the meeting, and wept. Matters began to come to a head on Tuesday, May 14th, when the Macintosh team made its quarterly review presentation to Scully and other Apple corporate leaders. Jobs still had not relinquished control of the division, and he was defiant when he arrived in the corporate boardroom with his team. He and Scully began by clashing over what the division's mission was. Jobs said it was to sell more Macintosh machines. Scully said it was to serve the interests of the Apple company as a whole. As usual, there was little cooperation among the divisions. For one thing, the Macintosh team was planning new disk drives that were different from those being developed by the Apple II division. The debate, according to the minutes, took a full hour. Jobs then described the projects underway. A more powerful Mac, which would take the place of the discontinued Lisa, and software called File Server, which would allow Macintosh users to share files on a network. Scully learned for the first time that these projects were going to be late. He gave a cold critique of Murray's marketing record, Belleville's missed engineering deadlines, and Jobs's overall management. Despite all this, Jobs ended the meeting with a plea to Scully, in front of all the others there, to be given one more chance to prove he could run a division, Scully refused. That night, Jobs took his Macintosh team out to dinner at Nina's Café in Woodside. Jean-Louis Gasset was in town because Scully wanted him to prepare to take over the Macintosh division, and Jobs invited him to join them. Belleville proposed a toast to those of us who really understand what the world according to Steve Jobs is all about. That phrase, the world according to Steve, had been used dismissively by others at Apple who belittled the reality warp he created. After the others left, Belleville sat with Jobs in his Mercedes and urged him to organize a battle to the death with Scully. Months earlier, Apple had gotten the right to export computers to China, and Jobs had been invited to sign a deal in the Great Hall of the People over the 1985 Memorial Day weekend. He had told Scully, who decided he wanted to go himself, which was just fine with Jobs. Jobs decided to use Scully's absence to execute his coup.
Throughout the week leading up to Memorial Day, he took a lot of people on walks to share his plans. I'm going to launch a coup while John is in China, he told Mike Murray. Seven Days in May Thursday, May 23rd At his regular Thursday meeting with his top lieutenants in the McIntosh division, Jobs told his inner circle about his plan to oust Scully. He also confided in the corporate human resources director, J. Elliott, who told him bluntly that the proposed rebellion wouldn't work. Elliot had talked to some board members and urged them to stand up for jobs, but he discovered that most of the board was with Scully, as were most members of Apple's senior staff. Yet jobs barreled ahead. He even revealed his plans to Jean-Louis Gasset on a walk around the parking lot, despite the fact that Gasset had come from Paris to take his job. I made the mistake of telling Gasset. Jobs wryly conceded years later. That evening, Apple's general counsel, Al Eisenstadt, had a small barbecue at his home for Scully, Gasset, and their wives. When Gasset told Eisenstadt what Jobs was plotting, he recommended that Gasset inform Scully. Steve was trying to raise a cabal and have a coup to get rid of John, Gasset recalled. In the den of Al Eisenstadt's house, I put my index finger lightly on John's breastbone and said, If you leave tomorrow for China, you could be ousted. Steve's plotting to get rid of you. Friday, May 24th Scully canceled his trip and decided to confront Jobs at the executive staff meeting on Friday morning. Jobs arrived late and he saw that his usual seat next to Scully, who sat at the head of the table, was taken. He sat instead at the far end. He was dressed in a well-tailored suit and looked energized. Scully looked pale. He announced that he was dispensing with the agenda to confront the issue on everyone's mind. It's come to my attention that you'd like to throw me out of the company, he said, looking directly at Jobs. I'd like to ask you if that's true. Jobs was not expecting this, but he was never shy about indulging in brutal honesty. His eyes narrowed, and he fixed Scully with his unblinking stare. I think you're bad for Apple, and I think you're the wrong person to run the company, he replied, coldly and slowly. You really should leave this company. You don't know how to operate, and never have. He accused Scully of not understanding the product development process, and then he added a self-centered swipe. I wanted you here to help me grow, and you've been ineffective in helping me. As the rest of the room sat frozen, Scully finally lost his temper. A childhood stutter that had not afflicted him for twenty years started to return. I don't trust you, and I won't tolerate a lack of trust, he stammered. When Jobs claimed that he would be better than Scully at running the company, Scully took a gamble. He decided to poll the room on that question. He pulled off this clever maneuver, Jobs recalled, still smarting thirty-five years later. It was at the executive committee meeting, and he said, It's me or Steve. Who do you vote for? 
He set the whole thing up so that you'd kinda have to be an idiot to vote for me. Suddenly, the frozen onlookers began to squirm. Del Yoakum had to go first. He said he loved Jobs, wanted him to continue to play some role in the company, but he worked up the nerve to conclude, with Jobs staring at him, that he respected Scully and would support him to run the company. Eisenstadt faced Jobs directly and said much the same thing. He liked Jobs but was supporting Scully. Regis McKenna, who sat in on senior staff meetings as an outside consultant, was more direct. He looked at Jobs and told him he was not yet ready to run the company, something he had told him before. Others sided with Scully as well. For Bill Campbell, it was particularly tough. He was fond of Jobs and didn't particularly like Scully. His voice quavered a bit as he told Jobs he had decided to support Scully, and he urged the two of them to work it out and find some role for Jobs to play in the company. You can't let Steve leave this company, he told Scully. Jobs looked shattered. I guess I know where things stand, he said, and bolted out of the room. No one followed. He went back to his office, gathered his longtime loyalists on the Macintosh staff, and started to cry. He would have to leave Apple, he said. As he started to walk out the door, Debbie Coleman restrained him. She and the others urged him to settle down and not do anything hasty. He should take the weekend to regroup. Perhaps there was a way to prevent the company from being torn apart. Scully was devastated by his victory. Like a wounded warrior, he retreated to Eisenstadt's office and asked the corporate council to go for a ride. When they got into Eisenstadt's Porsche, Scully lamented, I don't know whether I can go through with this. When Eisenstadt asked what he meant, Scully responded, I think I'm going to resign. You can't, Eisenstadt protested. Apple will fall apart. I'm going to resign, Scully declared. I don't think I'm right for the company. I think you're copping out, Eisenstadt replied. You've got to stand up to him. Then he drove Scully home. Scully's wife was surprised to see him back in the middle of the day. I've failed, he said to her forlornly. She was a volatile woman who had never liked Jobs or appreciated her husband's infatuation with him. So when she heard what had happened, she jumped into her car and sped over to Jobs's office. Informed that he had gone to the Good Earth restaurant, she marched over there and confronted him in the parking lot as he was coming out with loyalists on his Macintosh team. Steve, can I talk to you? she said. His jaw dropped. Do you have any idea what a privilege it has been even to know someone as fine as John Scully? she demanded. He averted his gaze. Can't you look me in the eyes when I'm talking to you? she asked. But when Jobs did so, giving her his practiced, unblinking stare, she recoiled. Never mind. Don't look at me, she said. When I look into most people's eyes, I see a soul. When I look into your eyes, I see a bottomless pit, an empty hole, a dead zone. Then she walked away. Saturday, May 25th. 
Mike Murray drove to Jobs's house in Woodside to offer some advice. He should consider accepting the role of being a new product visionary, starting Apple Labs, and getting away from headquarters. Jobs seemed willing to consider it. But first he would have to restore peace with Scully. So he picked up the telephone and surprised Scully with an olive branch. Could they meet the following afternoon, Jobs asked, and take a walk together in the hills above Stanford University? They had walked there in the past, in happier times, and maybe on such a walk they could work things out. Jobs did not know that Scully had told Eisenstadt he wanted to quit, but by then it didn't matter. Overnight he had changed his mind and decided to stay. Despite the blow-up the day before, he was still eager for Jobs to like him. So he agreed to meet the next afternoon. If Jobs was prepping for conciliation, it didn't show in the choice of movie he wanted to see with Murray that night. He picked Patton, the epic of the never-surrender general but he had lent his copy of the tape to his father, who had once ferried troops for the general, so he drove to his childhood home with Murray to retrieve it. His parents weren't there, and he didn't have a key. They walked around to the back, checked for unlocked doors or windows, and finally gave up. The video store didn't have a copy of Patton in stock, so in the end he had to settle for watching the 1983 film adaptation of Harold Pinter's Betrayal. Sunday, May 26th. As planned, Jobs and Scully met in back of the Stanford campus on Sunday afternoon and walked for several hours amid the rolling hills and horse pastures. Jobs reiterated his plea that he should have an operational role at Apple. This time Scully stood firm. It won't work, he kept saying. Scully urged him to take the role of being a product visionary with a lab of his own but Jobs rejected this as making him into a mere figurehead. Defying all connection to reality, he countered with the proposal that Scully give up control of the entire company to him. Why don't you become chairman and I'll become president and chief executive officer, he suggested. Scully was struck by how earnest he seemed. Steve, that doesn't make any sense, Scully replied. Jobs then proposed that they split the duties of running the company, with him handling the product side and Scully handling marketing and business. But the board had not only emboldened Scully, it had ordered him to bring Jobs to heel. One person has got to run the company, he replied. I've got the support, and you don't. On his way home, Jobs stopped at Mike Markula's house. He wasn't there, so Jobs left a message asking him to come to dinner the following evening. He would also invite the core of loyalists from his Macintosh team. He hoped that they could persuade Markula of the folly of siding with Scully. Monday, May 27th Memorial Day was sunny and warm. The Macintosh team loyalists, Debbie Coleman, Mike Murray, Susan Barnes and Bob Belleville got to Jobs's Woodside home an hour before the scheduled dinner so they could plot strategy. Sitting on the patio as the sun set, Coleman told Jobs that he should accept Scully's offer to be a product visionary and help start up Apple Labs. Of all the inner circle, Coleman was the most willing to be realistic. 
In the new organization plan, Scully had tapped her to run the manufacturing division because he knew that her loyalty was to Apple and not just to Jobs. Some of the others were more hawkish. They wanted to urge Markala to support a reorganization plan that put Jobs in charge. When Markala showed up, he agreed to listen with one proviso. Jobs had to keep quiet. I seriously wanted to hear the thoughts of the Macintosh team, not watch Jobs enlist them in a rebellion, he recalled. As it turned cooler, they went inside the sparsely furnished mansion and sat by a fireplace. Instead of letting it turn into a gripe session, Markala made them focus on very specific management issues, such as what had caused the problem in producing the file server software and why the Macintosh distribution system had not responded well to the change in demand. When they were finished, Markala bluntly declined to back jobs. I said I wouldn't support his plan, and that was the end of that, Markala recalled. Scully was the boss. They were mad and emotional and putting together a revolt, but that's not how you do things. Tuesday, May 28th his ire stoked by hearing from Markala that Jobs had spent the previous evening trying to subvert him, Scully walked over to Jobs' office on Tuesday morning. He had talked to the board, he said, and he had its support. He wanted Jobs out. Then he drove to Markala's house, where he gave a presentation of his reorganization plans. Markala asked detailed questions, and at the end he gave Scully his blessing. When he got back to his office, Scully called the other members of the board just to make sure he still had their backing. He did. At that point, he called Jobs to make sure he understood. The board had given final approval of his reorganization plan, which would proceed that week. Gasset would take over control of Jobs' beloved Macintosh, as well as other products, and there was no other division for Jobs to run. Scully was still somewhat conciliatory. He told Jobs that he could stay on with the title of board chairman and be a product visionary with no operational duties. But by this point, even the idea of starting a skunk work such as Apple Labs was no longer on the table. It finally sank in. Jobs realized there was no appeal, no way to warp the reality. He broke down in tears and started making phone calls to Bill Campbell, Jay Elliott, Mike Murray, and others. Murray's wife, Joyce, was on an overseas call when Jobs phoned, and the operator broke in saying it was an emergency. It had better be important, she told the operator. It is, she heard Jobs say. When her husband got on the phone, Jobs was crying. It's over, he said. Then he hung up. Murray was worried that Jobs was so despondent he might do something rash, so he called back. There was no answer, so he drove to Woodside. No one came to the door when he knocked, so he went around back and climbed up some exterior steps and looked in the bedroom. Jobs was lying there on a mattress in his unfurnished room. He let Murray in, and they talked until almost dawn. Wednesday, May 29th. Jobs finally got hold of a tape of Patton, which he watched Wednesday evening, 
but Murray prevented him from getting stoked up for another battle. Instead, he urged Jobs to come in on Friday for Scully's announcement of the reorganization plan. There was no option left other than to play the good soldier rather than the renegade commander. Like a Rolling Stone Jobs slipped quietly into the back row of the auditorium to listen to Scully explain to the troops the new order of battle. There were a lot of sideways glances, but few people acknowledged him, and none came over to provide public displays of affection. He stared without blinking at Scully, who would remember Steve's look of contempt years later. It's unyielding, Scully recalled, like an X-ray boring inside your bones down to where you're soft and destructively mortal. For a moment, standing on stage while pretending not to notice Jobs, Scully thought back to a friendly trip they had taken a year earlier to Cambridge, Massachusetts, to visit Jobs's hero, Edwin Land. He had been dethroned from the company he created, Polaroid, and Jobs had said to Scully in disgust, all he did was blow a lousy few million, and they took his company away from him. Now, Scully reflected, he was taking Jobs' company away from him. As Scully went over the organizational chart, he introduced Gasset as the new head of a combined Macintosh and Apple II product group. On the chart was a small box labeled Chairman, with no lines connecting to it, not to Scully or to anyone else. Scully briefly noted that in that role, Jobs would play the part of global visionary, but he didn't acknowledge Jobs' presence. There was a smattering of awkward applause. Jobs stayed home for the next few days, blinds drawn, his answering machine on, seeing only his girlfriend, Tina Redsey. For hours on end, he sat there playing his Bob Dylan tapes, especially the times they are a-changin'. He had recited the second verse the day he unveiled the Macintosh to the Apple shareholders, sixteen months earlier. That verse ended nicely, For the loser now will be later to win. A rescue squad from his former Macintosh posse arrived to dispel the gloom on Sunday night, led by Andy Hertzfeld and Bill Atkinson. Jobs took a while to answer their knock, and then he led them to a room next to the kitchen that was one of the few places with any furniture. With Red Sea's help, he served some vegetarian food he had ordered. So what really happened? Hertzfeld asked. Is it really as bad as it looks? No, it's worse, Jobs grimaced. It's much worse than you can imagine. He blamed Scully for betraying him and said that Apple would not be able to manage without him. His chairman's role, he complained, was completely ceremonial. He was being ejected from his Bandley Three office to a small and almost empty building he nicknamed Siberia. Hertzfeld turned the topic to happier days, and they began to reminisce about the past. Earlier that week, Dylan had released a new album, Empire Burlesque, and Hertzfeld brought a copy that they played on Jobs' high-tech turntable. The most notable track, When the Night Comes Falling from the Sky, with its apocalyptic message, seemed appropriate for the evening, but Jobs didn't like it. It sounded almost disco, 
and he gloomily argued that Dylan had been going downhill since blood on the tracks. So Hertzfeld moved the needle to the last song on the album, Dark Eyes, which was a simple acoustic number featuring Dylan alone on guitar and harmonica. It was slow and mournful, and Hertzfeld hoped would remind Jobs of the earlier Dylan tracks he so loved. But Jobs didn't like that song either and had no desire to hear the rest of the album. Jobs's overwrought reaction was understandable. Scully had once been a father figure to him. So had Mike Markula. So had Arthur Rock. That week, all three had abandoned him. It gets back to the deep feeling of being rejected at an early age, his friend and lawyer George Riley later said. It's a deep part of his own mythology, and it defines to himself who he is. Jobs recalled years later, I felt like I'd been punched. The air knocked out of me, and I couldn't breathe. Losing the support of Arthur Rock was especially painful. Arthur had been like a father to me, Jobs said. He took me under wing. Rock had taught him about opera, and he and his wife, Tony, had been his hosts in San Francisco and Aspen. I remember driving into San Francisco one time, and I said to him, God, that Bank of America building is ugly. And he said, No, it's the best. And he proceeded to lecture me, and he was right, of course. Years later, Jobs' eyes welled with tears as he recounted the story. He chose Scully over me. That really threw me for a loop. I never thought he would abandon me. Making matters worse was that his beloved company was now in the hands of a man he considered a bozo. The board felt that I couldn't run a company, and that was their decision to make, he said. But they made one mistake. They should have separated the decision of what to do with me and what to do with Scully. They should have fired Scully, even if they didn't think I was ready to run Apple. Even as his personal gloom slowly lifted, his anger at Scully, his feeling of betrayal deepened. The situation worsened when Scully told a group of analysts that he considered Jobs irrelevant to the company despite his title as chairman. From an operations standpoint, there is no role either today or in the future for Steve Jobs, he said. I don't know what he'll do. The blunt comment shocked the group, and a gasp went through the auditorium. Perhaps getting away to Europe would help, Jobs thought. So in June, he went to Paris, where he spoke at an Apple event and went to a dinner honoring Vice President George H.W. Bush. From there he went to Italy, where he drove the hills of Tuscany with Red Sea and bought a bike so he could spend time riding by himself. In Florence, he soaked in the architecture of the city and the texture of the building materials. Particularly memorable were the paving stones, which came from Il Cassone Quarry near the Tuscan town of Firenzuola. They were a calming bluish-gray. Twenty years later, he would decide that the floors of most major Apple stores would be made of this sandstone. The Apple II was just going on sale in Russia, so Jobs headed off to Moscow, where he met up with Al Eisenstadt. Because there was a problem getting Washington's approval for some of the required export licenses, 
They visited the commercial attaché at the American Embassy in Moscow, Mike Merwin. He warned them that there were strict laws against sharing technology with the Soviets. Jobs was annoyed. At the Paris trade show, Vice President Bush had encouraged him to get computers into Russia in order to foment revolution from below. Over dinner at a Georgian restaurant that specialized in shish kebab, Jobs continued his rant. How could you suggest this violates American law when it so obviously benefits our interests? He asked Merwin. By putting Macs in the hands of Russians, they could print all their newspapers. Jobs also showed his feisty side in Moscow by insisting on talking about Trotsky, the charismatic revolutionary who fell out of favor and was ordered assassinated by Stalin. At one point, the KGB agent assigned to him suggested he tone down his fervor. You don't want to talk about Trotsky, he said. Our historians have studied the situation, and we don't believe he's a great man anymore. That didn't help. When they got to the State University in Moscow to speak to computer students, Jobs began his speech by praising Trotsky. He was a revolutionary Jobs could identify with. Jobs and Eisenstadt attended the July 4th party at the American Embassy, and in his thank-you letter to Ambassador Arthur Hartman, Eisenstadt noted that Jobs planned to pursue Apple's ventures in Russia more vigorously in the coming year. We are tentatively planning on returning to Moscow in September. For a moment, it looked as if Scully's hope that Jobs would turn into a global visionary for the company might come to pass. But it was not to be. Something much different was in store for September. Chapter 18 Next Prometheus Unbound the Pirates Abandoned Ship Upon his return from Europe in August 1985, while he was casting about for what to do next, Jobs called the Stanford biochemist Paul Berg to discuss the advances that were being made in gene splicing and recombinant DNA. Berg described how difficult it was to do experiments in a biology lab where it could take weeks to nurture an experiment and get a result. Why don't you simulate them on a computer, Jobs asked. Berg replied that computers with such capacities were too expensive for university labs. Suddenly, he was excited about the possibilities, Berg recalled. He had it in his mind to start a new company. He was young and rich and had to find something to do with the rest of his life. Jobs had already been canvassing academics to ask what their workstation needs were. It was something he had been interested in since 1983 when he had visited the computer science department at Brown to show off the Macintosh, only to be told that it would take a far more powerful machine to do anything useful in a university lab. The dream of academic researchers was to have a workstation that was both powerful and personal. As head of the Macintosh division, Jobs had launched a project to build such a machine which was dubbed the Big Mac. It would have a Unix operating system, but with a friendly Macintosh interface. But after Jobs was ousted from the Macintosh division, his replacement, Jean-Louis Gasset, canceled the Big Mac. When that happened, 
Jobs got a distressed call from Rich Page, who had been engineering the Big Mac's chipset. It was the latest in a series of conversations that Jobs was having with disgruntled Apple employees, urging him to start a new company and rescue them. Plans to do so began to gel over Labor Day weekend when Jobs spoke to Bud Tribble, the original Macintosh software chief, and floated the idea of starting a company to build a powerful but personal workstation. He also enlisted two other Macintosh division employees who had been talking about leaving, the engineer George Crow and the controller Susan Barnes. That left one key vacancy on the team, a person who could market the new product to universities. The obvious candidate was Daniel Lewin, who at Apple had organized a consortium of universities to buy Macintosh computers in bulk. Besides missing two letters in his first name, Lewin had the chiseled good looks of Clark Kent and a Princetonian's polish. He and Jobs shared a bond. Lewin had written a Princeton thesis on Bob Dylan and charismatic leadership, and Jobs knew something about both of those topics. Lewin's university consortium had been a godsend to the Macintosh group, but he had become frustrated after Jobs left, and Bill Campbell had reorganized marketing in a way that reduced the role of direct sales to universities. He had been meaning to call Jobs when, that Labor Day weekend, Jobs called first. He drove to Jobs's unfurnished mansion, and they walked the grounds while discussing the possibility of creating a new company. Lewin was excited, but not ready to commit. He was going to Austin with Campbell the following week, and he wanted to wait until then to decide. Upon his return, he gave his answer. He was in. The news came just in time for the September 13th Apple board meeting. Although Jobs was still nominally the board's chairman, he had not been to any meetings since he lost power. He called Scully, said he was going to attend, and asked that an item be added to the end of the agenda for a chairman's report. He didn't say what it was about, and Scully assumed it would be a criticism of the latest reorganization. Instead, when his turn came to speak, Jobs described to the board his plans to start a new company. I've been thinking a lot, and it's time for me to get on with my life, he began. It's obvious that I've got to do something. I'm thirty years old. Then he referred to some prepared notes to describe his plan to create a computer for the higher education market. The new company would not be competitive with Apple, he promised, and he would take with him only a handful of non-key personnel. He offered to resign as chairman of Apple, but he expressed hope that they could work together. Perhaps Apple would want to buy the distribution rights to his product, he suggested, or license Macintosh software to it. Mike Markula rankled at the possibility that Jobs would hire anyone from Apple. Why would you take anyone at all, he asked. Don't get upset, Jobs assured him and the rest of the board. These are very low-level people that you won't miss, and they will be leaving anyway. The board initially seemed disposed to wish Jobs well in his venture. After a private discussion, the directors even proposed that Apple take a 10% stake in the new company and that Jobs remain on the board. That night, Jobs and his five renegades met again at his house for dinner. He was in favor of taking the Apple investment, 
but the others convinced him it was unwise. They also agreed that it would be best if they resigned all at once, right away. Then they could make a clean break. So Jobs wrote a formal letter telling Scully the names of the five who would be leaving, signed it in his spidery lowercase signature, and drove to Apple the next morning to hand it to him before his 7.30 staff meeting. Steve, these are not low-level people, Scully said. Well, these people were going to resign anyway, Jobs replied. They are going to be handing in their resignations by nine this morning. From Jobs's perspective, he had been honest. The five were not division managers or members of Scully's top team. They had all felt diminished, in fact, by the company's new organization. But from Scully's perspective, these were important players. Page was an Apple fellow, and Lewin was a key to the higher education market. In addition, they knew about the plans for Big Mac. Even though it had been shelved, this was still proprietary information. Nevertheless, Scully was sanguine. Instead of pushing the point, he asked Jobs to remain on the board. Jobs replied that he would think about it. But when Scully walked into his 7.30 staff meeting and told his top lieutenants who was leaving, there was an uproar. Most of them felt that Jobs had breached his duties as chairman and displayed stunning disloyalty to the company. We should expose him for the fraud that he is so that people here stop regarding him as a messiah, Campbell shouted, according to Scully. Campbell admitted that although he later became a great Jobs defender and supportive board member, he was ballistic that morning. I was fucking furious, especially about him taking Daniel Lewin, he recalled. Daniel had built the relationships with the universities. He was always muttering about how hard it was to work with Steve, and then he left. Campbell was so angry that he walked out of the meeting to call Lewin at home. When his wife said he was in the shower, Campbell said, I'll wait. A few minutes later, when she said he was still in the shower, Campbell again said, I'll wait. When Lewin finally came on the phone, Campbell asked him if it was true. Lewin acknowledged it was. Campbell hung up without saying another word. After hearing the fury of his senior staff, Scully surveyed the members of the board. They likewise felt that Jobs had misled them with his pledge that he would not raid important employees. Arthur Rock was especially angry. Even though he had sided with Scully during the Memorial Day showdown, he had been able to repair his paternal relationship with Jobs. Just the week before, he had invited Jobs to bring his girlfriend up to San Francisco so that he and his wife could meet her, and the four had a nice dinner in Rock's Pacific Heights home. Jobs had not mentioned the new company he was forming, so Rock felt betrayed when he heard about it from Scully. He came to the board and lied to us, Rock growled later. He told us he was thinking of forming a company, when in fact he had already formed it. He said he was going to take a few middle-level people. It turned out to be five senior people. Markala, in his subdued way, was also offended. He took some top executives he had secretly lined up before he left. That's not the way you do things. It was ungentlemanly. Over the weekend, both the board and the executive staff convinced Scully that Apple would have to declare war on its co-founder. 
Markala issued a formal statement accusing Jobs of acting in direct contradiction to his statements that he wouldn't recruit any key Apple personnel for his company. He added ominously, We are evaluating what possible actions should be taken. Campbell was quoted in the Wall Street Journal as saying, He was stunned and shocked by Jobs' behavior. Jobs had left his meeting with Scully thinking that things might proceed smoothly, so he had kept quiet. But after reading the newspapers, he felt that he had to respond. He phoned a few favored reporters and invited them to his home for private briefings the next day. Then he called Andy Cunningham, who had handled his publicity at Regis McKenna. I went over to his unfurnished mansion-y place in Woodside, she recalled, and I found him huddled in the kitchen with his five colleagues and a few reporters hanging outside on the lawn. Jobs told her that he was going to do a full-fledged press conference and started spewing some of the derogatory things he was going to say. Cunningham was appalled. This is going to reflect badly on you, she told him. Finally, he backed down. He decided that he would give the reporters a copy of the resignation letter and limit any on-the-record comments to a few bland statements. Jobs had considered just mailing in his letter of resignation, but Susan Barnes convinced him that this would be too contemptuous. Instead, he drove it to Markula's house, where he also found Al Eisenstadt. There was a tense conversation for about fifteen minutes, then Barnes, who had been waiting outside, came to the door to retrieve him before he said anything he would regret. He left behind the letter, which he had composed on a Macintosh and printed on the new laser writer. September 17, 1985 Dear Mike, This morning's papers carried suggestions that Apple is considering removing me as chairman. I don't know the source of these reports, but they are both misleading to the public and unfair to me. You will recall that at last Thursday's board meeting, I stated I had decided to start a new venture, and I tendered my resignation as chairman. The board declined to accept my resignation and asked me to defer it for a week. I agreed to do so in light of the encouragement the board offered with regard to the proposed new venture and the indications that Apple would invest in it. On Friday, after I told John Skelly who would be joining me, he confirmed Apple's willingness to discuss areas of possible collaboration between Apple and my new venture. Subsequently, the company appears to be adopting a hostile posture toward me and the new venture. Accordingly, I must insist upon the immediate acceptance of my resignation. As you know, the company's recent reorganization left me with no work to do and no access even to regular management reports. I am but thirty and want still to contribute and achieve. After what we have accomplished together, I would wish our parting to be both amicable and dignified. Yours sincerely, Stephen P. Jobs When a guy from the facilities team went to Jobs' office to pack up his belongings, he saw a picture frame on the floor. It contained a photograph of Jobs and Scully in warm conversation with an inscription from seven months earlier, Here's to great ideas, great experiences, and a great friendship, John. The glass frame was shattered.
Jobs had hurled it across the room before leaving. From that day, he never spoke to Scully again. Apple's stock went up a full point, or almost 7%, when Jobs' resignation was announced. East Coast stockholders always worried about California flakes running the company, explained the editor of a tech stock newsletter. Now with both Wozniak and Jobs out, those shareholders are relieved. But Nolan Bushnell, the Atari founder who had been an amused mentor ten years earlier, told Time that Jobs would be badly missed. Where is Apple's inspiration going to come from? Is Apple going to have all the romance of a new brand of Pepsi? After a few days of failed efforts to reach a settlement with Jobs, Scully and the Apple board decided to sue him for breaches of fiduciary obligations. The suit spelled out his alleged transgressions. Notwithstanding his fiduciary obligations to Apple, Jobs, while serving as the chairman of Apple's board of directors and an officer of Apple and pretending loyalty to the interests of Apple, a. secretly planned the formation of an enterprise to compete with Apple, b. secretly schemed that his competing enterprise would wrongfully take advantage of and utilize Apple's plan to design, develop, and market the next-generation product, C. Secretly lured away key employees of Apple. At the time, Jobs owned 6.5 million shares of Apple stock, 11% of the company, worth more than $100 million. He began to sell his shares, and within five months had dumped them all, retaining only one share so he could attend shareholder meetings if he wanted. He was furious and that was reflected in his passion to start what was, no matter how he spun it, a rival company. He was angry at Apple, said Joanna Hoffman, who briefly went to work for the new company. Aiming at the educational market, where Apple was strong, was simply Steve being vengeful. He was doing it for revenge. Jobs, of course, didn't see it that way. I haven't got any sort of odd chip on my shoulder, he told Newsweek. Once again, he invited his favorite reporters over to his Woodside home, and this time he did not have Andy Cunningham there urging him to be circumspect. He dismissed the allegation that he had improperly lured the five colleagues from Apple. These people all called me, he told the gaggle of journalists who were milling around in his unfurnished living room. They were thinking of leaving the company. Apple has a way of neglecting people. He decided to cooperate with a Newsweek cover in order to get his version of the story out, and the interview he gave was revealing. What I'm best at doing is finding a group of talented people and making things with them, he told the magazine. He said that he would always harbor affection for Apple, 